Protection of data is among the main challenges Chief Information Security Officers face, including Elaine Starkey. Hello, I'm Eric Chabro of Information Security Media Group, and I'm pleased to be speaking again with Elaine Starkey, Chief Security Officer for the State Government of Delaware. Welcome back, Elaine. Thank you, Eric. Great to be with you again. What's most vexing in securing data? Oh, gosh, Eric. You know, the, the threats just keep coming fast and furious. They're more sophisticated than ever. There's a growing need to want to send data to the cloud. I mean, I think if you lump all of that together, that's what creates such a challenge for for people in this business, in the security business, in roles like I am, to ensure the proper security and protection for the data that, that the citizens have entrusted to us. Is your concern mostly when it's on the cloud? And, and how it's secured, and, and if that's the case, uh, what do you do to make sure that it is secure? Yes to that question. I mean, certainly cloud deployment and sending of data to the cloud is a top priority for us, but it's not the only component of this data protection equation that we're talking about. Certainly the same type of controls that we've used for years for on-premise solutions are challenged every day as well. As the, as the threat level goes up, as the number of attacks and a number of attempted penetrations to the network go up and the sophistication of the attacks go up. That's not happening just for us, but that's typical across the board, whether our data is here in our data center on-premise or out in the cloud. Okay, so why don't you give us some examples of maybe what you're doing today to secure data that maybe you weren't doing a year or two ago? We've made some great progress on what I call our cloud security terms and conditions, and basically that's a set of contractual obligations that become part of the contract whenever we end up striking a contract with a cloud provider. And I have to tell you what changed over the last year or so is that when we first got into this business, we went slightly overboard with our level of protection, thinking that our cloud provider needed to protect data in exactly the same way we did if it was an on-premise solution. And we were very prescriptive in not only what we wanted them to do, but how we wanted it to do them. Thankfully, over time, that document has evolved. I think we're on our third version of it. And we've been able to scale back somewhat and and leave it up to the cloud provider in many cases on the the answers to the how questions while still maintaining that overall accountability and responsibility. And ultimately, we own the data. We are just entrusting them and they are the custodians of our data during the life of the contract. Give an example of maybe where you were a little bit too uh, specific on what you wanted to be in security and why it's not the case now. We were very prescriptive when it came to the operational side of the house in terms of password policies and downtime metrics. While we had good general agreement from most of our cloud providers, it really wasn't necessary. So we scaled that that back in a major way. I think we started out with about 35 terms and conditions, and we have um, reduced it now to 10. So it's a much more streamlined process. It's a much quicker process for us to get through in the vetting of new business cases that come through. Okay, you say you're less prescriptive with password policy and downtime metrics, but I'm sure these are things you're concerned about. So what are they doing that you feel you don't have to prescribe it specifically? What we decided to do is focus in, kind of lift up and focus in on the bigger picture in terms of their overall 
protection responsibilities and their overall accountability if indeed the data was not protected in a way it should and there was some kind of breach or compromise. We have not relaxed our positions on things like breach notification covering the costs related to a breach recovery and response. We've not relaxed our position in terms of that we are the ultimate owners of the data and we're just entrusting our data to them. The data cannot leave the edge of the United States. So we really just opted to, to pull back a little bit, lift a little bit higher, and focus in on the overall protection standards, if you will, and then each provider could plug in their level of detail that allows them to accomplish that, those, that level of protection. Instead of you prescribing uh, password protections or, or, or downtime metrics, they're coming back to you and telling this is what we do, and you say, okay. Yes, exactly. Why is just focusing on maybe 10 items instead of uh, you know three dozen items, why is that a, a better management approach? Two things have happened. I, first of all, that moves the process along quicker. We often uh, were unable to get through all of the terms and conditions. We, we typically jump on conference calls to walk through this with our vendors, and typically we weren't able to get through everything, number one, <laughs> uh, when we had so many terms and conditions. Number two, there's lots of aspects to this. There's the business functionality. There's, you know, uptime and things like that in addition to the protection of data. So this allows us to give equal treatment to all facets of the business case, not just on cloud security. Who's negotiating this? Are, Are you on a team with the CIO or how's that work? My office is responsible for the negotiation with any new cloud provider, and depending on the situation, depending on the uh, the type of data that is moving to the cloud, we often involve our attorney general's office, as does the vendor that we're working with. They, They involve their legal counsel as well. Another challenge you're facing is identifying mitigating risks. What are some of the specific challenges, and how are you going about to meet those uh, challenges? This is a tough one as well. For the reasons I've already mentioned, the threats and the risks are coming fast and furious. They're diverse. They're more sophisticated than they've ever been before. It is not a one-size-fits-all solution to this. It definitely takes a multi-pronged, multifaceted approach, what we call defense in depth, in terms of wrapping around different layers of protection around our most critical data. So it could be a stepping up or ramping up of our software patching program to make sure that we're not subject to vulnerabilities in unpatched software. Could be a focus on malware or web applications, even just remote access as well. All the challenges that that come with our employees remotely accessing state systems for telecommuting or for other purposes. It's a, a juggling act, if you will. You know, it's a good analogy because there's lots of balls in the air. And at any given time, you know, one threat may be greater than the other. We're just simply counting on that defense in depth and multi-pronged approach to keep pace. Can you give me an example of of a uh, multi-faceted approach in uh, defense in depth? I think we spoke before, Eric, about um, the filtering that goes on with our emails. When emails leave the state network, um, we, we call this our data leakage protection program. Basically, if anyone attempts to send a, a social security number, we intercept that at the edge of our network. If they're sending it outside of the state network, 
in a clear text email, in an unencrypted email, we intercept that and flag that email and block it and provide some education back to the user to let them know that this could be dangerous and it's against policy to send unencrypted social security numbers out to outside providers. And we give them some guidance on how to eliminate the risk or minimize the risk do they really need to send the full Social Security number? Is there some type of compelling business need to send the full number? And if not, that's my first choice, that they actually opt not to send that. If there is that compelling need, then certainly they need to protect it with the appropriate encryption tools and send it in an encrypted email as opposed to clear text. That's just one example and, 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 and just one example within the filter for social security numbers. We're taking a look at other filters and adding that to our toolbox. We could be you know, doing the same thing with credit card numbers and ABA numbers and things like that. We're looking at expanding that to lessen any information that is possibly could be leaked out of the organization. So the listeners understand when you said well, you made reference to this before, this was an interview you conducted a few years ago uh, where you mentioned this uh, filtering out social security numbers. You say you educate the users. Are, are they being educated? Are you finding less of that, uh, less uh, information such as social security numbers going out in unencrypted emails? Oh, without a doubt. Yeah, it, it was, it's been interesting to watch this, the pattern because, um, <laughs> you know, people are persistent, right? So they may think that there's just a one-time block and many of them will continue to try it. And then when they keep getting blocked and they keep getting the same education message, eventually the desired outcome happens and behavior is changed. And we've definitely seen that in this case. We're starting to monitor the same thing with, with credit card numbers, ABA numbers as well. So I expect the same trend to happen there. You mentioned about encrypting uh, data as it goes from one place to another. You know, we hear a lot about, uh, you know, breaches where information was not encrypted. Uh, and part of the reasons given is that, you know, the, the needed access to it internally. What are your processes deciding what kind of information gets encrypted and when? The encryption is not easy. There are a few vendors that are doing it and doing it successfully. But we run into a lot of vendors who are just getting started doing encryption. It involves many more things than just encrypting the data. As soon as you encrypt it, then there, there's suddenly key management issues that have to be discussed and agreed on, how, how frequently the keys will change, who keeps the keys, how are keys destroyed. You know, there's, it, it leads to a much larger discussion. Our criteria is ties directly back to our breach notification legislation, which basically tells us that if there's <clears throat> any personally identifiable information, namely first and last name, combined with full date of birth, full social security number, any type of driver's license number or state ID number, that those are the things that we call our keys to the kingdom. And basically what that means is that if if the bad guys were to get a hold of that data, all they really need is a social and a date of birth to steal your identity. And if they have a credit card number, they can commit fraud against you. Hence, that's the premise behind our breach notification legislation. So that becomes our top tier of data whenever that data is involved in, in any type of engagement, whether it's on-premise or in the cloud, data encryption is required for those type of engagements. Is there other kind of information you want encrypted? And, and, and what are the policies about, around that? Who makes that decision? 
what we base uh, a lot of these decisions on, not just for encryption, but really different kinds of data protection, is really comes down to the classification of the data. And we have four, four, four classifications in Delaware, starting with the most uh, protected, which is top secret, followed by secret, followed by confidential and public. The bar is higher, basically, for the, the top secret data, and the bar continues to lower as we move down through the cycle. It's not all about PII. Delaware is a popular corporation state. There may be some information relative to our incorporation law or the process that we use in Delaware to incorporate businesses that that line of business considers protected. And if uh, made available or made uh, access to by other states, then that could create some problems for them. Delaware state government is adopting the federal government's uh, cybersecurity framework, also known as the NIST framework, named for the organization National Institute of Standards and Technology that has shepherded the initiative. Why is Delaware adopting the NIST framework, and how are you weaving it into your current set of policies and standards? We're big fans of the, the new NIST framework. We have overlaid the NIST framework on top of our current policies. Our primary security policy is called just that, the Delaware Information Security Policy. And in many cases, in many areas, it's much more comprehensive than the NIST cyber framework. But there are some areas in risk assessment and things like that where we felt like we needed to add more components from the NIST framework into our policy. That work is in process right now. Who in your staff is reviewing the framework? And can you point to an instance where maybe there was an element or a component of the framework that you say, hey, this would be good to add to the Delaware framework? We have folks focused on, on policy creation and maintenance, and they're the ones that are taking a look at this and, and overlaying the NIST framework to our current policies. The best example of where there was a gap is in the risk management space. The NIST framework does a very nice job in defining and assigning risk management best practices, and that was an area where we were not as comprehensive in current policy as we should be. That's an area that is being edited right now, actually, to include the NIST framework. As always, it's been a pleasure talking with you, Elaine. Thank you, Eric. It's always a pleasure to hear from you, too. That's Delaware State Chief Security Officer Elaine Starkey, and I'm Eric Chabro. Thanks for listening.